One of the handouts that you received is 10 things that every Christian should know about Islam. That's an article that you can look at later. I think it's very, it's very appropriate and uh, it's something that you can, can check out at a later time. But what we're going to do tonight is pick up where we left off last week. And if you were not able to be with us last week, we basically covered the beginning of Islam and contrasted that with the beginning of Christianity. And the beginning of Islam, anybody remember, I guess if we just put it very simply, the two main groups that came out of that original division? Sunnis and Shiites, alright? And Sunni means the majority, right? And then the Shias, or the Shiites, are are the minority. And from the beginning... There were assassination attempts from the beginning. It was, it's really interesting, especially as we will see tonight, we are told by the Quran that Muhammad is our example that we should imitate. Kind of like the bracelets that circulated back in the 1990s, what WWJD, what would Jesus do? And if we ask the question, what would Muhammad do? There's actually a lot that Jesus told us not to do, that was kind of the way that he lived his life. So what we're going to do tonight is get into what Islam actually teaches, and if we're able to, and we kind of got started fairly early here, so we may be able to get to it, a successive list of biblical references from Jesus and Quranic references from Muhammad that place Jesus and Muhammad side by side and we see what they actually taught and how they compared with each other. Because what you and I are told by politicians and by people all over the place is that Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Have you heard that before? And often that is said not so much as a statement of fact. It's said with a little asterisk behind there that you had better not say that they are different Because if you do, you are intolerant. Now, what actually is the definition of tolerance? True definition of true tolerance. What do you think? What's that? You respect what other people think and what they practice. Right. You may not agree with them, but you respect them and honor. Yes. Okay, and, and, and we can, we can take, this goes back to the Enlightenment, right? This goes back to coming out of medieval Roman Catholicism in Europe to where if you said, for example, like us as Baptists, we believe that the Lord's Supper is a symbol, right? A symbol of what Jesus did, but it's not the actual blood and body of Jesus. Well, in medieval Europe, if you held to that opinion, You would be burned alive, or even more so, if you were uh, an Anabaptist or if you were baptized by immersion, they would say, all right, you believe that, we'll baptize you for good, and they would tie you up and drop you in a river. That's what true tolerance is not, right? But today, we've kind of messed with the definition to where tolerance means you have to say that everybody's right about the same subject, And if we could just remove ourselves for just a moment, that logically breaks down, doesn't it? Something cannot be true and false at the same time. So that's where we kind of have to disengage that cultural emotion-driven lack of logic and step back and think. So that's what we're going to try to do tonight, and we'll have some some good discussion here. Our start-off verse for this series, you can mark it in your Bibles. Many of you probably know it by heart. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay? And so what we want to prove in this series is for for Muslims that Jesus is more than a prophet. So here is a statement by Winfrey Corduan. I brought the book several weeks ago. If you're looking for a great book to understand Islam and other world religions, it's a book called Neighboring Faiths. It's awesome. I would encourage you to get that. Here's what he, he observes within Shia Islam. The imams, and what's an imam? We covered that last week. Anybody remember? What's that? Yeah, it'd be kind of like a Muslim preacher or a Muslim priest, imam. So the imam's interpretation of the Quran is considered infallible. Some Shiites believe that this infallibility extends to the whole person of the imam whose entire life would be sinless. 
Now, sometimes we look at newscasts of certain what we're told radicalized imams are saying, and we see the lives of those imams and say, how could anyone believe or follow that person? But if you truly believe that the imam's interpretation and words from the Quran are infallible without error, then what are you supposed to do other than consent and obey? So that's just a little asterisk there. But here's our five or six pillars of Islam, and Islam means submission to Allah. Number one would be the confession of God's oneness. Number two, ritual prayer five times a day. Number three, mandatory charity, which is about 2.5%, a good bit higher than what most Baptists normally give to their church each year. Y'all all right? Uh, number four, observance of Ramadan, which we are in the month of Ramadan right now. And in the month of Ramadan, you cannot eat from the morning until the sun goes down, and then after the sun goes down, you can, you can eat. Number five would be a pilgrimage, pilgrimage to Mecca called a Hajj, if at all possible, Muslims are encouraged to do that. And then some people debate this of whether jihad is actually a pillar of Islam or a duty of, of Islam. So here's our seven principles of Islam. Number one, this would be kind of like their confession of faith, their Baptist faith and message. Number one would be that Allah is the one God, creator, sustainer, and sovereign lawgiver. Number two, the Holy Quran is the word of Allah, which is just the Arabic word for God. Number three, the messengers of Allah with Muhammad, the last of the prophets. So what we'll see, it's very interesting that the Muslims actually accept the prophets of the Old Testament, like Abraham, like Moses, even Adam. As a prophet, they consider Jesus to be a prophet, but that Muhammad is the final bookend on the prophets. Very interesting. Number four, uh, Allah's angels and jinn. Remember, uh, what is it, Aladdin? And they rub the lamp at what comes out? A genie. A genie is kind of an English-sized word of the Arabic of jinn, and they would be basically our concept of demons under the control of Satan. Number five would be the last day, the resurrection and the judgment, paradise and hell. So if you talk to a Muslim, they do believe in an afterlife. Uh, number six, predestination of all that happens, good or bad, fate. If you've ever seen the um, movie Lawrence of Arabia, it was the one back in 1960s. Anybody seen that? I think it's Peter, I uh, forget his last name. O'Toole, okay, Peter O'Toole. Remember the part to where they're coming across the desert and they see that one of the camels doesn't have a rider and one of the guys had actually fallen off during the middle of the night and they said, well, if we go back and try to save him, you're, whoever goes back is going to die. And Lawrence says, we have to go back. He's one of us. We have to go save this guy because the Arabs were in revolt against the Turks in World War I, the Ottoman Empire. And then the, then the Muslims said in the movie, it is his fate, it is written. And Lawrence said, nothing is written. He went back, rescued the guy, and came back. So in the Arab world, there's a strong idea that you have a fate. And it's not even if you know brothers and sisters in evangelical Christianity who would call themselves five-point Calvinists, who really strongly emphasize the sovereignty of God. This is not even Calvinistic. This is much further that says that there's no way that you could change what you'll become or where you'll end up. Just think about that. If you truly believe that all is simply based upon the will of Allah, no other factors involved, then it, then it gives rise to not wanting to do a whole lot. Number seven would be jihad. And this right here, um, we'll cut the lights down for just a sec. How many of you have heard of halal foods, meats? That that is what is that, John? I guess it's like um, almost like a holy meat, right? They, 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 it's got to be prepared a certain way. Exactly. Yeah, I knew John's got all sorts of multicultural experience from New York City. Um, but yeah, that's that's exactly it. That it is prepared in such a way that Muslims consider it to be clean. And Muslim food laws are not all that much different from Jewish food laws. So if you ever see the word halal or a tag like this, know that it is basically for us, by us. All right? But just Muslims. 
uh, in food. So here's another statement that, that Corduan makes. He says, no Muslim, even the best among them, imagines that he is guaranteed... Actually, this is he quotes um, an Islamic scholar, Suzanne Hanif. She says, no Muslim, even the best among them, imagines that he is guaranteed paradise. Even the best Muslim. So here's the question that I want us to, to discuss right now. Could we use this Muslim lack of assurance, lack of assurance of eternal life, as a springboard for the gospel. How, how could we use this to get to Jesus? What do you think? Maybe according to the Bible, we can know that we have eternal life. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. John, same thing? Yeah, First John chapter 5, verse 13. Yes. It can not be that you have some effects or some yeah, because you know the Bible says First John five thirteen. I think that's what you were you're getting at. That these things have been written so that you may what? No, that you have eternal life, and that is vastly different than every other religion in the world. So here's the thing, Lee. You can. Awesome, awesome verse. See, that, that, things like that that we often just assume and sometimes when preachers quote them and when Ronnie Thompson is waxing eloquent in his Sunday school class and throwing down and shucking the corn and throwing the cob at them, I mean, and they, they reference verses like that, you're just like, I've heard that before. But think, but think if you didn't believe that assurance was possible and you could almost in one sense attain this un this unattainable moral law, but still not know. You talk about pressure. I think for just a moment, growing up, and I know all of us here have somewhat different backgrounds if we were to have an examination of each one of our families, but if you knew someone in your family or there was a coach or a teacher and you could never measure up, I want you to think, because everybody has something that we can reference. Someone that you, you wanted to please, but you felt that you could never please. They never said good job. They never gave you approval. Think about that, but magnify it a million fold. And think the God of the universe who controls heaven and hell and life and death, that there's nothing that you could ever do to where God would say, well done. And in Christianity, we know that that's the case only because of what Jesus has done for us. So that's one thing that the simple gospel message is so revolutionary when we talk to Muslims. Yeah? It's also the key understanding why Muslims will strap a bomb to themselves and blow themselves up. I heard a former Muslim now Christian say that's what you know, we in the West don't get. Just what you were saying, that Muslims go to bed at night wondering, because it's all about the scale. Yeah. More good than bad. And if I die tonight, what's going to happen to me? In the Quran, if I'm not mistaken, Muhammad says, I don't know what Allah will do with me. You know, he's not sure. So right. if your head is not sure, right. there's no, but the one certainty is if you die in jihad, and you go straight to the front of the line yeah. paradise. Yeah, it's the best chance you have. Yeah, and so that's why they're willing to right. do that. Right, and if, if we really think about it from a non-American perspective for just a moment... If that's your best chance, if that's the way that you read the Quran very literally, to where you die in jihad against the infidels, but yet you're guaranteed, as best you know, not going to hell but going to paradise, that makes the most sense, doesn't it? If that's true, then that makes the most sense. But we'll, we'll get to that. Actually, we're going to get to most of that the next study. But here are some prophets recognized in Islam. So here's some common ground that we can go on. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Solomon, David, Jesus. And it's interesting here that when we study the Old Testament, like Jonathan, your class has done for a good while, all of the prophets in the Old Testament were Hebrews. But yet in Islam, the one prophet that they recognize from Ishmael's line is Mohammed. See. So Remember the break, Esau, right, and Isaac? Even the Muslims believe that the very forefathers of the ones that they hate today are legit prophets. And that's interesting, isn't it? 
So that's something that you can come to common ground with. And something to note here, and we had to kind of modify, as we always do, your outline. We stretch it as much as we can get, but I don't know if this line got in there. What they believe is that each prophet um, replaces or completes the previous prophet's revelation. So, for example, we can say, Jesus, you believe that he was a prophet, and they will say yes. But they'll say, Muhammad is the one who completed, right, who completed Jesus' message. So therefore, to say that Jesus contradicted Muhammad, they don't go with that line of reasoning. They just say that Muhammad is the last and the greatest prophet. Islamic theology, a few more points here. They believe in a Unitarian theism. Um, We as Christians believe that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, They believe that us believing in the Trinity is the unpardonable sin called shirk, which is to say that God is anything other than strictly one. They also believe judgment day depends upon uh, one's good deeds or bad deeds. And this is from the Quran, uh, chapter 23, verses 102 and 103. It says, Then those whose balance of good deeds is heavy, they will attain salvation. But those whose balance is light will be those who have lost their souls in hell they will abide. Now here's the question that we would ask as Americans in the way that we think. How do you know at which point your scale is going one way or the other and exactly which actions help it to be tipped in the non-damnation side of the spectrum? And guess what the answer is to that? There is none. And here's the thing. That's a great way to keep people in slavery. It's similar to what the popes did in medieval Europe, to where if you wanted your relatives to get out of purgatory quicker, you came and you paid the priests to do masses, and it's, it was just basically religion for hire. And also claims to fill Christianity as Christianity claims to fulfill the Hebrew Scriptures. For example, when people say that Christianity is about 2,000 years old, thinking Christians will say, well, actually that's not the case, because Christianity is not a new thing. Jesus didn't just show up one day. Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies that were given from the very beginning of time, right? So we say that the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus so that the New and Old Testament is together. That There's no separation. There's no, I guess we could say, disagreement between the two. So they would say that Islam is to Christianity as Christianity is to the Old Testament. <clears throat> Here's a a statement by uh, the imam that I interviewed in Greenville, South Carolina. I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a second. I asked him about the phrase that occurs over and over in the Quran, if you've ever read it, Allah, the compassionate, the merciful. And I said, here's the preface to this statement. I said, what evidence is there in the Quran that Allah actually loves the sinner or the wicked? And here's his answer. Quote, Allah loves the righteous Muslims, but is not compassionate or merciful to the wicked, Allah does not love them. How does this clash with the Jesus version? It's exactly the opposite. Romans 5.8, for example, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write down Matthew chapter 5, I believe it's in verses 45 through 47, to where Jesus says, um, that if you greet those who greet you, what do you more than the publicans or the tax cheats or the scum of the earth? Here's, here's, here's something that's very, I think, for us to really understand. According to Islam, God only loves those who love Him first. According to Jesus, that kind of love is only the kind of love that thieves have. That's a strong statement, right? Jesus says, love your enemies. Totally switched around. When I was there, I went to interview this imam. It was a really intense time. I enjoyed it. I sat down with him and one of his guys came over. And apparently, I didn't even tell him you know, that I was a minister. I just wanted to interview him. I was teaching some religion classes at a local college. And this guy comes and he, he gets right in my face and he says, You Christians believe that Jesus said that if you see me, you see the Father. You're guilty of polytheism. And the, and the imam kind of told him, Settle down, settle down. And I was like... 
that verse that Jesus said, turn the other cheek, I was like, man, I just hope I don't lose a tooth, you know, because this guy was really intense. But the imam, he was a very, very nice guy, told him to calm down and let us have the conversation. But I, I went into their, their service, and, uh, and I realized where I was sitting, I would have to stand and kneel with them, uh, and I, I'm not Muslim, so I, I, I moved towards the back. And then after the service, there were probably about 300 men there from all walks of life, um, all nationalities. And there was a teenager who came up to me afterwards. And he, he apparently saw me just standing in the back and, and watching. And he said, you do not pray? And I said, I, actually, I do pray. And then his other brother came up and pointed and he says, he is an American. <laughs> Guilty as charged, Greenville, South Carolina. So here's the thing. We do not live in 1950s America. We all know that. I talk to a lot of people and they talk about the good old days. Those days are long and gone. We live in a multicultural, multi-religious society. And Jesus still calls us to make disciples of how many nations? All of them. So what we're going to have to consistently do, like we talked last week, is when that patriotism and that Americanism rises up and it blocks us from being able to see people as Jesus saw them. Because I know a bunch of y'all, when I said, he's an American, you thought Chuck Norris. That's what you thought. That's what you thought, where he's taken out. All right, so what we have to do is to do what Jonah didn't do. And Jonah should have said, God, they don't deserve it. The Ninevites don't deserve forgiveness, but I don't deserve forgiveness, right? And to see them as people who need to be saved not as, well, fill in the blank. I don't have to do that for you. Key Islamic terms. This is interesting. Dar al-Islam. So these are the two regions that Muslims would see the world in. The first one is where Islamic law is in effect, or it's called the land of peace. The other region is the Dar al-Harb, which is the land of warfare, meaning the non-Islamic world. Now, our history buffs know... Um, what was on the flag of the Ottoman Empire? It was the crescent, right? The Islamic flag. And we'll get to this next time we meet, but it was in the 1600s that the Ottoman Empire had come to the very gates of Vienna, Austria, to where they were stopped by the Polish army who came to deliver them. And here's this is an interesting historical insight. People say, why is there such a difference between Western Europe that has progressed scientifically, philosophically, academically, and Eastern Europe that today is still very poor, we realize that for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Eastern Europeans were systematically at warfare with the Ottoman Empire that controlled most of the Eastern world for about a thousand years. Where you're Germans and where you're British and where you're French and the Belgium and so forth, they had the Atlantic to their west, and then they had the Eastern Europeans protecting them on the east. So that's an interesting insight that we need to understand that there was jihad that tried to take over Europe. And it was even in Spain in about the eight 900s that the Spanish finally stopped the, uh, the Moorish invasion. So Europe, that's the thing, it's not a new thing. It's not a new thing at all. It's something that's gone on ever since um, Islam has been in existence. But... We know through history the Europeans kind of had control for a long time and military, I guess we could say, superiority so that it wasn't a factor. But today, um, it certainly is. So here's a question. If you believe that there was a land of peace and the land of, um, of warfare, how would these two categories affect your view of the world? What do you think? You want the land of peace to spread. Sure. Why wouldn't you want land of peace to, shred, to spread? Good. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a very cut uh, line in the sand worldview. Most of us have heard of Sharia, which means public and private life is governed by Islamic and Quranic law. Um, uh, a kafir. There's different ways you can spell this. If you hear someone say a kafir or a kafir, it means a non-believer. And um, go past this. This is something historically that if you were a non-Muslim, a Jew or a Christian, if you were, if you were a polytheist or something like that, you had no rights. But if you were a Jew and a Christian, 
you could live in a Muslim land, you couldn't be a citizen per se, but you would be taxed, and the tax was called a jizya, and that would be somewhere around the neighborhood of 29% of your income. It was a punitive tax for you remaining a Christian or a Jew in a Muslim land. So when Muslim scholars say that Islam does not support coercion and forcing people to convert, in one sense that may be true, but there's also other verses that say the opposite. But do you see how this can be tricky? It's like you don't have to convert. You can live here. But we're going to charge you a punitive tax for not being one of us. And that's the dirty little secret whenever we're told that Islam does not advocate coercion. But you see, we're looking at the facts. We're not getting what politicians tell us. So a few facts about the Quran is that it's only valid in Arabic. So you go down to Barnes and Nobles and pick up the little paperback copy that says the K-O-R-A-N, and you try to reason with that, it's very, I guess we could say, very convenient for a Muslim, because they, even if you prove a contradiction, they'll say, well, that's the English copy, that's not the real one. So, this, this is the, the most interesting part for me as far as how the Quran came together. It was compiled by the third caliph, uh, Uthman Ibn Affan, I guess that's how you say that, who collected parchments, palm leaves and pieces of wood as well as circulating copies of what Muhammad had already said and then they compiled that into what became known as the Quran and then they burned everything they didn't consider to be legitimate. So that's one of the things that we have in Christianity absolutely massive manuscript evidence. Over 24,000 to 25,000 New Testament manuscripts in some shape or form but in Islam you don't have that. And if people really get into the details, there's a lot of uh, difficulties trying to establish historically what we have as Christians, and that is a verified text. Um, It's about four-fifths the size of the New Testament. It has 114 chapters called surahs, and the verses are called ayats. It's arranged from the longest to the shortest, so it's like our Bible starting out with Psalm 119 and Genesis chapter 1. So maybe that's to weed out the people who lose attention quickly. Um, It is considered to be eternal, and they would say that the exact master copy of the Quran is in heaven. And the Quran means to read or to recite. And they believe that it was revealed to Muhammad over a period of 23 years through the angel Gabriel. Now this is something to take note of. The Hadiths. The Hadiths would be kind of like the, the Jewish Talmud is to the Jewish um, Bible or the, Jew, the Hebrew scripture. And it, it uh, contains the teachings, rulings, and actions of Muhammad as recounted by his early associates. Kind of like the Gospels, I guess. And they believe that the Torah and the works of King David are legitimate. So a few things about Sharia law. Um, This is the way that it would happen if Sharia law was instituted here in Franklin County, the courthouse just right down the street. You would be allowed to argue your case before a judge, and the Quran would be consulted by the judge, and then the judge would issue a fatwa or a legal judgment based upon whatever the Quran says about your case. And this is a question that I asked the imam when I interviewed him. I said, you as a Muslim living here in America, he wasn't a citizen, he was legally here. I said, how do you as a Muslim leader understand the Quran in relation to the United States Constitution? And here's his answer. He says the Constitution would have to go because there is no law that is higher than Allah's law as revealed in the Quran, and you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer to see that the Quran and the Constitution violently clash. Not just disagree. For example, the First Amendment, the freedom of religion. Within Islam, that's a no-no. And that's once again where the worldviews clash, right? Most Americans say, well, the, you can never force someone or try to coerce someone into believing something. And within Islam, it's the worst sacrilege for us to, for example, say that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So, um, 
ladies, this is for you. Uh, what the Quran teaches in regards to marriage and women. Uh, in the Quran, divorce is actually very simple, guys. What you would have to do is publicly say, I divorce you, but that would need to be on three separate occasions, and you simply say that publicly. All right? And in the Quran, ladies, and there is no um, statement that would equal that from, from a woman. And here is, uh, in the Quran, I guess we could say chapter 4, verse 34, uh, how the husbands are counseled to deal with marital conflicts. And quote, as to those women on whose part you fear disloyalty and ill conduct. So ladies, if you're kind of, your husband thinks that you're acting shady or uh, you've been, you have ill conducted yourself, all right? Admonish them first, next refuse to share their beds, and last beat them lightly. Now some versions of the Quran translate this beat them, but there are some that translates it beat them lightly, okay? Um, but if they return to obedience, do not seek against them means uh, of annoyance, for Allah is most high, great above you all. Okay? Sounds good. What do you think? Ob- observations here. What do you think so far? Right. Yeah, and that's actually an interesting point, and I don't know if we'll get to this tonight. But within Christianity, this is this is a huge theological topic. I mean, th- this is Pandora's box. We as Christians believe, and I want you to think about this with me, that there are some things that God cannot do. The Bible says God cannot, what? Lie. Now here's the thing. Often if we say there are some things God cannot do, people think that that's a bad thing. Like we just said that God's power is limited. But think about, I don't know, think about if you're so good at math. You you have math down to a T to the point that you literally cannot get anything wrong. You are just that good. Think about a basketball player who is so good that he cannot miss a shot. Hard for us to understand. God's character is so great and He's so holy and He's so pure. He's so strong and sin has no appeal that God cannot lie. But in Islam, God's will is not dependent upon His nature as we as Christians believe. We believe that God is essentially good. Okay, That God is good, therefore what He does, what He says issues from who He is, therefore we know His Word is good and, and His will is good. But in Islam, it is the will of Allah, period. There is no constraint. So, if you're talking to a Muslim and the doctrine of the Trinity comes up, which is not the best way to start off, okay? That's like talking to a Jehovah's Witness and saying, hey, what do you think about blood transfusions? Because they, no, seriously, because they believe that that's, that's eating the blood, like it says. It, you know, we'll get to that here in a couple of months. But if the issue comes up and they say it's illogical to believe that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which it's not, we dealt with that in our systematic theory uh, series. But, but ask them this: if they say that's illogical, that's impossible, you say, are you saying that there's something that God can't do? I thought that the Quran teaches that. God can do all things, that God has no limits. And they will, if they're a good Muslim, say, well, that's absolutely true. Allah has no constraints. He can do all things. Say, well, why couldn't Allah choose to exist as Father, Son, Holy Spirit? You see, it's using their own argument against them and not having to necessarily go to the biblical text right off because they don't accept it. Any questions there? It didn't take long to get violent, did it? Well... There's something, something here. I mean, it's definitely a process because we, we definitely want to be fair, right? We don't want to do what some people do and try to make the, the, the Quran say something that it's not. But it's definitely a process. And however it works out. Um, so John? Have, uh, Muslim, they, they, they women are described, but Jesus embraced women. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good point. And in fact, there's there's a sermon by John Piper you can find online. It's an awesome sermon. It's called Jesus Treated Women Differently. I think that men and women should look at his absolutely brilliant treatment of the biblical text about in that day, the Jews had obviously fallen off the radar because they killed Jesus using the Romans as their, I guess, henchmen. But but how Jesus did treat women differently. And uh, and it's a it's something that I often it blows my mind talking with younger people my age is um, and even with feminists and reading uh, we, for class we had to read a, a whole theology book written by feminist authors and respond to that very interesting that everything that the feminists today in America assume to be good and they use to attack Christianity it's those very things they got from Christianity. Jesus in the New Testament teaches that, you know, that, that men should love their wives as Christ loved the church, and that's biblical leadership, and so forth and so on. So it's interesting today, it's almost like, oh, that's, that, wow, that's, that's an awesome Bible. Can I see your Bible? And let me beat you over the head with it, telling, it, 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 no. Anyway, once again, the logical breakdown. Um, some more, more aspects on marriage and women in the Quran. Um, this is from collected writings here, and all this will be on online if you want to get the source and go do more, more research, but I'll just walk through this here. The woman who dies and with whom the husband is satisfied will go to paradise. So ladies, don't burn the biscuits. Uh, a wife should never refuse herself to her husband, and I'm not making this up, uh, even if it is on the saddle of a camel. If anything presages a bad omen, it is a house, a woman, or a horse. Never will a people know success if they confide their affairs to a woman. And uh, this is, I I think this is from 2009, the article, when the ladies were allowed to vote in Afghanistan. And notice they have the full burqa, but yet they have their identification cards, and they're required um, to wear that. John, what was the, was it the movie about drunken wild horses? A Time for Drunken Horses by the Kurds. A Time for Drunken Horses. It was a really powerful movie. Made by, I think the guy was from Kurdistan. Go look it up. Unbelievable. Also, if you can get on the internet, I've never seen this movie advertised. I went into a movie store about three years ago. I hardly ever do that. There's no movie stores really in existence anymore. Just get it from Redbox or, you know, on, on the internet. But I saw this little, this little movie and it, and it said Osama. And it was one of the most heartbreaking movies I've ever seen. And it was made by an Afghan film director using people in Afghanistan showing, and it was right before the invasion of the Americans uh, when we went in the first time, and how women were systematically hosed down and so forth. And here's, where, here's where people raise their hands and say, time out. Say, that's not Islam, that's Arabic culture. That's not Islam, that's Afghan culture. I was at an economics conference back in 2009, and there was a Turkish Muslim giving a presentation on economics and Islam. And the question was asked to him, why do we see so much abuse of women in Islamic societies? And he said, that's because of Arab culture. But here, and this is just me, my rebuttal response to that is that Arab culture for around 1,500 years or so has been shaped by Islamic culture. So you're appealing to something that Islamic culture replaced and blaming something that honestly is not really in existence and that hasn't been shaped by what is today, and that's Islam, Islamic culture. And um, there's, there's a lot of stories we could share there. But here's, here's a question that I want to pose to you. This is just a little bone to pick. It's the elephant in the room. I'm regarding Afghanistan and the women's liberation movement here in the U.S., Where was the support from women's rights groups in the United States for the liberation of oppressed Afghan women under the oppressive rule of the Taliban? I was trying to pay attention. As a young college student, I never saw our major women's liberation movement, feminist movements here in the United States applauding what was happening in Afghanistan, meaning the Taliban was no longer in control. Comments? Or did we just pull the pen and roll the grenade? I just think it's interesting that you bring 
mean, it, it's obvious that the liberal ideology, even some atheistic ideology, you can tolerate Islam and you can tolerate all things Muslim, but you cannot tolerate Christianity. Right, right. Yeah, and, and just, you know, and I'm, I'm not, I'll just say it. Um, McAuliffe, who's running for the governor here, uh, posted something on his campaign page uh, celebrating Ramadan and wishing well to Muslims and so forth. Often, when it comes from a certain spectrum of American society, it's never for multiculturalism, it's never for tolerance. I believe it's just a war against the gospel. Because you can talk about Islam, you can talk about any dirty thing out of the closet, and you are applauded from the White House down. Every aspect of society. But if you do, for example, like what Tim Tebow does, simply say that you're a follower of Jesus, you get hit from every single direction. Um, just, And I think it is because of his stand for Christ. Yeah, regardless of... Support this young girl that's been in the news. Well, it had... Right. And for us as Christians, we should be for truth. Amen? Regardless if it fits a paradigm. What's that? The feminist movement in the United States, it's 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 in it's in there with the Marxist movement. The feminist movement And I think you know, we as evangelical Bible believing Christians we are the ones, should be if we understand our Bibles, that are for the rights of women. Because we believe the Bible. And the Bible tells us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We believe the Bible. To where Jesus gave, like you're saying, John, mercy to the woman caught in the act of adultery and so forth and so on, all the way through Scripture. And to where even in First Peter, the Bible says in chapter 3, that if husbands basically are a jerk to their wives, God will not hear your prayer. That's hardcore. And he's talking to believers. So, that, you know, once again, when we terms get hijacked. And it, only if you agree with me, then therefore you're for women's rights or for children and so forth. But it's not, it's not that clear cut. So we've got uh, seven minutes left. We're going to walk through a few of these statements contrasting Jesus... And Mohammed. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse uh, 8 through 10. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice Jesus says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not those who are persecuting others. Here's what uh, Mohammed says, quote, Allah assigns for a person who participates in holy battles and Allah's cause, and nothing causes him to do so well except belief in Allah and his messengers that he will be recompensed by Allah either with a reward or booty if he survives or will be admitted to paradise if he is killed in the battle as a martyr. Right? So in other words, part of your discipleship is to bear your sword. Jesus says, all who live by the sword will perish by the sword. At what point did Jesus say that? Yeah, immediately after violence. Here's what Muhammad says. Quote, know that paradise is under the shades of swords. A little different. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 44, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Muhammad says, and this is Surah 47, verses 3 and 4, quote, When ye meet the infidels, strike off their heads till ye have made a great slaughter among them, and of the rest make fast the fetters, or an old English word for chains. So kill them, and the ones that you don't, Enslave them. Next time we get together, we'll talk about Islam and slavery. And I think in that regard, you see the greatest contrast between Christianity and Islam, historically. Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Muhammad says in Surah 8, verse 60, Quote, Against them make ready your strength to the utmost of your power, including steeds or horses of war, to strike, what? Terror. 
into the hearts of the enemies of Allah and your enemies and others besides whom ye may not know, but whom Allah doth know. So if you're interpreting the Quran very literally in a naturalistic sense, what conclusion may you come to on this point? Strike terror in the hearts of the enemies of Allah. Who are the enemies of Allah? Non-believers, those who have not Islam submitted to God. A couple more. Jesus said once again, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Muhammad said, quote, if God gives me victory over the Quraysh, which is a certain uh, Arabic tribe, in the future, I will mutilate 30 of their men by God. If God gives us victory over them in the future, we will mutilate them as no Arab has ever mutilated anyone. If he's the standard, then how does this... You see, once again, when we see these acts that are being perpetrated, have been perpetrated, the beheadings, the torturings, so forth and so on, we say it's barbaric. Our politicians can't understand it. But if you believe that this is true and this is real and this is what honors God, and this may be a way that you can get out of burning in hell forever, then it's the most logical thing to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, about how Ishmael will kind of be a, a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand will be against him. You know, even still, God works among that people group. It's not to say that they're you know, cursed or anything like that, because God definitely does work within that. It's true, you know. They've been at war with each other. It's been that way from the very beginning. Yeah. Jesus said, the verse that most of us learn first, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. (coughs) Muhammad said in um, chapter 9, verses 111, quote, Allah hath purchased of the believers their persons and their goods, For theirs in return is the garden of paradise. They fight in his cause and slay and are slain. A promise binding on him in truth. So right here we see a contrast between Jesus who essentially said, love your enemies, and Muhammad who followed his own advice and said, dominate your enemies. So we're going to have to to stop right here, but this is kind of an awkward point to stop. So let me say this before we close. These things should cause us not to be self-righteously angry at the Muslim world. Although I do believe that people who carry this out, they're putting themselves under the righteous judgment of God. There is a place for you know military response and so forth to protect people. But every time that we see wickedness, either taught in a religious book or people carrying that out, that should cause us to step back. And this almost sounds cliche, but to say, if it was not for the grace of God, where would I be? I think the fact that we're here on a Wednesday night, somebody somewhere, probably a lot of people for a long time, poured the gospel into us to the point that we would have an appetite for Jesus. So let's let let's let that that sometimes that fear, which this is hopefully not a fear mongering bait. This is just facts, right? Everything that we feel and we think about this should cause us to hit our knees and to pray that God could use us. Is Rocky Mount Baptist Church, and I believe He can in the future, to reach Muslims? Why would that be hard for Jesus? Would that be a stretch for the sovereignty of God that he could use Rocky Mount Baptist Church to reach Muslims for Jesus? Not one single bit. Is this evil stuff that we've talked about? Absolutely. But Jesus is the one who says, I have destroyed the power of death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.10 It's Jesus who wins. In the end, like we've talked about Sunday, Jesus wins. So between now and then, we're to use our money, use our minds, Pull together our resources. Let our hearts be broken for people that are caught up in this false religion. And may God have mercy on us if we react 
in such a way, and I'm not cussing when I say this, just say to hell with them. Shame on us if that's our response. And honestly, there are churches, and I'll, I'll share this very quickly, and then we'll, then we'll be, be gone, but you all know that's a meaningless statement, right? There's a church that I, that I went to um, about five years ago. My brother was there doing some ministry, and I had a beard at the time. And I walked up, and an older deacon came out, and he says, you look like Osama somebody. He didn't know me. And I thought he was joking. And then he began to make jokes about Muslims, saying things such as, yeah, if you just grab that turban on the top of their head and pull it like that, they'll spin off into the distance. He didn't know me. And what if I would have been a lighter-skinned Eastern European Muslim with a beard? I don't think Jesus is pleased at all with that. So for me and for us who are raised here in the good old U.S. of A., let our hearts be broken when we respond to the attitude that says to hell with them. Instead, we should say, God, what can we do to bring in the gospel? So thank you all for, this was kind of a tough one tonight, wasn't it? A lot of intense stuff. But next week we will not have this study. We're going to do our reach out for VBS. And the next Wednesday we're going to have VBS. But then I guess it would be the second week in um, August because we've got some business to take care of the first night. But we'll, we'll let you know. Thank you guys for studying with us tonight. Let's, uh, let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for Jesus and how he is greater and stronger than any hatred that is taught either by the new atheist or people who come from uh, any world religion. Lord Jesus, in the end, wins. He is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. So would you help us and would you convict us when we may act out of fear and we may retract uh, and, and hide ourselves in a false type of patriotism? Because we know that true patriotism is doing what is right. And what is right is doing whatever we can to bring spiritual freedom to people all around the world. God, would you use us as Rocky Mountain Baptist Church to love Muslims and to tell them the truth. We love you, Father. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.